My name is Leah, and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-hosts, Jen and Jesse. Hey! Hi there. So it's been a minute since we've done this whole Right Sweats thing. Um, over the holidays, we decided to kind of take a break, recharge. So what was everyone up to? How did everyone's holiday season go? Um, I was mostly okay. I was really sick, um, but I worked oh, no. the whole time anyway, um, mm. which I actually didn't mind. But yeah, being sick was not my favorite part of the holiday season. <laughs> Yeah, mine was fine. Uh, nothing too significant or surprising. I'm sick now, so if I sound a little weird, that's what's going on. But as for my holiday, it was pretty good, fine. Yeah, it was pretty quiet and low-key this year. I have not been sick and am not currently sick, so let's see what's on the horizon for that. Yeah, it's just a couple weeks away for you. <laughs> pretty much. And it's going to hit me and I'm going to be out like near death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I figured in order to kind of restart the new year and start fresh, we'd focus a little bit this episode on kind of our beginnings and what we project going forward, you know, new year, new us kind of thing. So I think it would be fun to kind of share some of the ways our favorite books have opened, either first sentences, first paragraphs, you know, not much more than first pages, but just a little bit of something that got us hooked into a new year to get our our listeners hooked into a new year of right sweats. Why don't you start, Leah? All right. So when I first picked this passage, Jesse's thing was, what are you going to do? Read the Bible? And I'm like, well, no, but uh, it's kind of close. <laughs> so I'm actually going to read it and then talk about what it is. There was Eru, the one who in Arda was called Iluvatar, and he made the first, the Ainur, the holy ones, that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding them themes of music, and they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone, or but a few together, while the rest hearkened. For each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he came. And in the understanding of their brethren they grew, but slowly. Yet as ever they listened, they came to deeper understanding, and increased in unison and harmony. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's not the Bible. It is uh, the first paragraph of the Ina Lindale from the Silmarillion. <laughs> wow. Basically a creation story for the whole world that Lord of the Rings was based. And Well, yeah, I guess it is kind because of, his whole thing was building like a like a legend history for the British Isles, right? So yeah, so it really is like ways. a creation story for him. That's really cool. And it really, it's a, a hard book to get into, especially having once you read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and you're looking for more, there's a part of you that's looking for more adventure and more um, uh, character building. And this is just such hard world building. There are characters and there are personalities that come out, but it's just such a hard legend, not an adventure story. I always understood that as being more like encyclopedic than uh, a a narrative. Um, Not so much encyclopedic. It, goes more into the history of the world and how we got to a place where Lord of the Rings could happen in a lot of ways. It's a lot of big stories and myths and, you know, those who came before. It really doesn't reference too much about... Well, so it doesn't exactly follow one character through their, like, personal journey or whatever and their character development. It's more like world, like the story arc of the world. Right. It 
everything kind of loops back onto touching on the one like great evil, but that character is the most consistent character throughout the entire you know, collection of stories that is the Silmarillion. I like that. That's really interesting. And I think it did really set the tone for like, you know, creation story. Like it did sound very biblical. Well, and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits start with such a like very cute and um, personable kind of way. They both start with Hobbits and it's very inviting and joyful. And right from the get go, this says, this is not the Hobbit. This is definitely not Lord of the Rings. You know, buckle up kiddos. We're getting... Crazy. Was it written before or after the Lord of the Rings and all that? Yes and no, um, both. Oh, okay. um, the Silmarillion was meant to be published after the Lord of the Rings. Um, Tolkien died before he finished it, but a lot of that stuff was created before or during Lord of the Rings. So, what about it specifically is um, what you like? I really like how it sets a really it sets a tone for the rest of the story or stories. It's not positioning itself as an adventure or anything else it by having such a biblical beginning it removes you from getting um it removes you from getting invested in a lot of ways it keeps you very much at a um at a distance from itself so it can tell something that's meant to be more historical or factual um and revered a little more than just an adventure story yeah it definitely does do that that's true yeah, it puts the reader in the right mindset. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You're not thinking it's going to be about the little hobbit that lived in the little hole or whatever the beginning <laughs> of the hobbit is. Right. Now, would you, if that book started differently, do you think it would have affected the, how much does this in, the introduction influence your feelings about the rest of the book? So I think once I read the Silmarillion, I was in hook, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. I had enjoyed the hobbit when I was a child. I'd gotten really into the Lord of the Rings, the book. When the movies were coming out, it definitely went hand in hand for me. I can't be that cool. But when I finally got through and read this Silmarillion, because it is a a kind of a heavier text than the Lord of the Rings is, when I finally was able to get all the way through that, I think I felt invested in the whole world in a way that I hadn't before. I think that's Mm -hmm. when I kind of bridged the, the gap between being a fan and being obsessed with Lord of the Rings like I became. Yeah. That makes sense. I always wonder, yeah, how much a introduction can affect the way you feel about the rest of the text, because I know for myself, I have a hard time remembering introductions because there's so much to now get used to. You have to get used to the rhythms of the text, of the writer, of the story. You have to sort of gather your bearings a little bit. And I know that if I kind of sit there and go like, I need to understand all of this, I'm liable to give up. Sometimes I know I have to just deal with it and just be uncomfortable and just kind of misunderstand things before I can get to it. So it's a little hard for me to like think about um, opening paragraphs. I was just going to say that it's really similar for me. That's actually what I was going to talk about this episode. I have a really hard time connecting with the beginning of stories. I had a hard time finding my favorite beginning because I don't really like beginnings. They are annoying and difficult for me. And I just push through because I know I'll eventually start to like the story. This is true for anything, movies, books, Yeah. Um, TV shows all the time. The, the pilot episode, the first paragraph, are the hardest for me. I, yeah, I'm a guy that skips a lot of pilot episodes. But I do think that a, a, a opening paragraph can make or break something, too. Because also there's that just confusion. But then, And that confusion, I think, is natural. But if something adds to that confusion, um, there's a way to mitigate that confusion that I think some people do a lot better than others. Like, I have never made it through the first paragraph of a clockwork orange um and that's for various reasons that's because of the whole language that whatever his name is anthony burgess invents there 
but he does it in such a way that just smashes you in the face with it. And if you're not like on board with this, you're not on board with it. It doesn't help with anything. And I don't think those things are very effective. Well, and a lot of that is your aversion to like an in media res beginning. You don't want to be thrown into it. You like being kind of made sure that you have your bearings yeah. and then jump into it. Well, unless there's a reason for that. I think, yes, yeah, I'm saying it's all I guess about mitigating the the reader's already discomfort because there's no way that a reader won't be discomforted a little bit starting something new just because they don't know at all what the the shape of it is that makes sense yeah that's a good point yeah so go ahead and share what you chose jesse me well um i got two um so first is from jennifer's favorite book lolita by uh nabokov (laughs) oh my god <laughs> Have you read it ever though, Jen? Uh, I've read like excerpts, and I've read about the author and so the no, room, you haven't read it. Then. But no, I've definitely. <laughs> it's a very funny, good book that I think people have unfairly thought is a certain thing that it's not. But it is kind of that. I, I mean, think it's yeah. more how people have adopted it into culture than it is like what that yeah. book was doing. Yeah, it's not very glamorous. I think the narrator who's supposed to be the, the also the main character guy. I think he's made to look like a dumb fuck the whole time. And I think you're supposed to be like, this guy's gross. Yeah, there's a way you're, to read you're it supposed you to think that. that. Yeah, But when you're not thinking that, yeah. it's a little alarming. Because he's also kind of funny and it's good at, Nabokov is good at building sympathy for a character. And then you go, wait a minute, I shouldn't be sympathetic for this guy. But if you're not, I could see how you could miss those things and kind of take it in the wrong way. But the, the opening paragraph I really like. Lolita, light of my life, fire my loins. My sin, my soul, Lolita. The tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth, Lolita. I like it. I like how musical it is and sort of jumps around and It does sound musical. Hey, so that part, Lolita, is that actually broken apart? Yeah, it's L-O period T-E period. No, L-O period, L-E-E period T-A. Period. that's cool i do like when there are deliberate breaks like that in a word so that you read it like that i like that mm. uh, device well that's the whole clockwork orange or the whole finnegan's wake thing where it's half written phonetically or meant to be said in a slang that i have marked over here the first paragraph of portrait of the artist as a young man <laughs> which does the same thing which is yeah. why i marked it because i don't think i it's whatever it is it got ruined for me separately by somebody else what do you mean ruined for you? Let me read it first. So this is the beginning of uh, Portrait of the Artist by a Young Man by James Joyce. Once upon a time, and a very good time it was, there was a moo cow coming down along the road. And this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Tuku. Who knows? Who fucking cares? It's Joyce. Who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you were still reading I know. I was like, wow, that took a turn. I don't remember this part of Portrait. <laughs> uh-huh. He really gets, like, blue. But, um, so yeah, Baby Tuku, who fucking cares? Um, <laughs> I had a teacher who, most of the class was about how important the opening paragraph was. And how that entire thing was what was going to then educate your entire framework for what you looked at the novel through. Which I agree and disagree with the same way I just said that just now. Where it can ruin it, and it can really affect things also. It's not the most important thing everything's a little bit sort of as important and i don't like beginnings and endings as much as i like middles but that's just me so this teacher was really into it and so what she did is she took this paragraph and said you have to read it right because the narrator's writing as when he was a child so you have to go once upon a time in a very good time it was there was a moo cow coming down along the road 
And so she continued to read this first like two pages of portrait in a baby voice. And I just wanted to die. <laughs> but it, it has things spelled out phonetically like that too. To be whatever Irish childhood, you know, Joyce lived or Joyce's character there, which was good for the, the scene, but it's just been ruined by other people for me, which is neither here nor there with an opening paragraph. That's crazy. Man, though, I can see what you mean about how some things can be ruined. But, but I can see being like going into this book and going like, I know it's going to be tough. And the beginning goes, there's a moo cow. I'd be like, fuck this. I'm done. <laughs> 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 that's a moo cow book there is a moo cow look at um moo cow. i will say that i have a real hard time with baby voice and with like even when authors write from a kid's perspective and write in like a kind of childish voice it, that's hard to pull off as yeah. adults yeah. trying to pretend to be kids hard to pull off and it will grate on my nerves i think i have an easier time with authors that try to write as if they're writing to kids like almost I think I can deal with someone talking down to the audience more than I can deal with them trying to speak as a kid yeah because I love that kind of fairy tale beginning you know the in the hole in the ground there lived a hobbit the other one that I marked was from the magician's nephew I really love the the kind of whimsical tone it takes in the beginning. Let me see. This is a story about something that happened long ago when your grandfather was a child. It is a very important story because it shows how all the comings and goings between our own world and the land of Narnia first began. In those days, Mr. Sherlock Holmes was still living at Baker Street and the Bastables were looking for treasure in the Lewisham Road. In those days, if you were a boy who had to wear a stiff-eaten collar every day and schools were usually nastier than now, but meals were nicer, and as for sweets, I won't tell you how cheap and good they were because it would only make your mouth water in vain. And in those days, there lived in London a girl called Polly Plummer. I'd rather have my author try to connect with me child mm-hmm. to child, if that makes any sense. Well, I think that's different, and that's almost like um, Paddington versus, like the Paddington movies versus, I don't fucking know, uh, Sherlock Gnomes 2, where uh, it's not so much talking down in a patronizing way it's talking to but it's not talking to on an equal footing yeah i guess so yeah it is very much like let me tell you the story but i think there's nothing there's nothing patronizing in there i think when you were a kid you could pick up when a person was talking to you like you were a baby and stupid versus when somebody was talking to you like oh there's an eight-year-old that is a smart eight-year-old you know like not as an adult not as a kid but as a whatever you are you know, I think those those beginnings do do that a little bit. Well, and when you talk to a kid, not necessarily as an adult, but just as like a person who can ex- like hear adult concepts just kind of filtered through like a kid filter. I don't know. I think that that, that kids like that being treated with respect. Mm-hmm. What kinds of stuff did you pick out, Jen? Um, so, yeah, like I said, I have a really hard time with this. I actually went through some of my favorite stories and found an examples of shit I hate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hey. Know? That's good. Yeah. Like, uh, when I was a kid, one of my favorite comics was, like, one of these anime comics, the manga. It was um, Fushigi Yugi. Mm-hmm. And it starts out with uh, Miyaka in school dreaming about eating food. And then she is woken up by her teacher. Um, and she shouts, oh, give me back my food. But, oh, huh, JK, because she was only dreaming about food. So she wakes uh-huh. up in the middle of the class and the teacher's mad at her. Anyway, um... I absolutely hate this beginning because it literally does nothing for the story. Literally doesn't matter. You know what the story is about? Miyaka goes to a fucking mystical land through a book, enters like historical China and finds out she's a mystical priestess that's going to save the world. 
It has yeah. nothing to do with waking up in the middle of school. Yeah, see, I had not read that. And so I th- I was going to say, is it about like a a girl who's like struggling to be a student or like a little stinker? Nope. No. And I mean, they do come back to that idea that she needs to study for her exams and do better in school. And like, she does think about her real world life while she's in historical China, but it's just um, such a ridiculous beginning because it doesn't establish anything except that Miyaka likes food. What a dumb thing to start a story like this. (laughs) Like, anyway, I hated that. Uh, I did find one example uh, or two examples of um, beginnings. I do really love though. Mm-hmm. One of them was The Hobbit, Leah. Yeah. So in a, a hole in opening. the ground, there was a hobbit, like lived a hobbit or whatever. Um, I loved that because it was very visual and strange. And I just remember thinking, what the fuck is a hobbit? Why is it in a in the hole in the ground? Is it an animal? It was just very interesting because it, it immediately gave me a ton of questions with a very simple, quick sentence. It was just wonderful. Cute, creative. I loved it. And it really does send a tone. Yeah, it does say we're going to be dealing with things you don't understand. And then they're going to be playful and interesting. Yeah. And that that book really does have that tone, which is very different from the rest of his work. In a lot of his work, it's borderline academic because that's what he was. Yes. And it's so interesting to see throughout The Hobbit just such a light and playful tone hitting on some pretty big themes. Mm-hmm. I could spend a whole episode talking about <laughs> different stuff. So Jesse, other than um, portrait, what else did you have? So I had another one. This is from PG Wodehouse's right. Uh, right. Ho Jeeves, which is one of his sort of masterworks. Um, and as I was like re- looking at it right now, I kind of realized why I liked it and uh, let me read it. And then we can talk about it. I don't know if you have had the same experience, but the snag I always come up against when I'm telling a story is this dash difficult problem of where to begin it. It's a thing you don't want to you don't want to go wrong over because one false step and you're sunk. I mean, if, a, if you fool around too long about the start, trying to establish atmosphere, as they call it, and all that sort of rot, you fail to grip and the customer walks out on you. I've always liked that one a lot, too. That one feels really meta. I kind of like that. I didn't realize that until I, I started like reading that. it now because I picked it separately. I didn't even think about that, but I like how, yeah, it definitely essentially just goes, you know what? Beginnings are hard. So here so we let's are. just you agree know? that it's true. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't like that. I want, I want some, like, what does that establish other than actual like written tone? You don't learn anything about. I think that's the thing is reading the story that's narrated by the main character and the main character has a very, uh, Bertram Wooster has a very established kind of goofy um, personality. And that explains a lot about him all of a sudden. That's what he talks to people. And that's what he talks as the narrator. And it's a character who then shows up in Wodehouse work, you know, for the next 30 years. So it, it's one of those things, I think maybe that's why it works. But yeah, if I don't know, yeah, if you were starting a book and not knowing that, then you might, might have given up on it. See, cause I, one of the ones I picked was, not that it was particularly good, but it kind of went with this theme of establishment. I went with, I am the vampire Lestat. I'm immortal, more or less. The light of the sun, the sustained heat of an intense fire. These things might destroy me. But then again, it might not. Because I thought it actually did a, a good job of introducing the character and setting the tone. Yeah. I don't know how much the Wodehouse one did that for me. That's almost a call me Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Pretty close. Well... Before that paragraph, there is like a part of dialogue, but I just kind of skipped it because it doesn't really make sense. But it is 
the two characters talking. So maybe, I don't know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. If you were reading that book, you the one I had it from, you may have been familiar with the four books before it also. So you kind of know what the tone is. Got it, got it, got it. So Jen, what other things don't you like in beginnings? I just kind of don't like dreams or I don't really appreciate when uh, when we're getting too much of the world and not enough of the people that we're going to be following or vice versa. If this is going to be a world heavy story like you were talking about with this um lord of the rings how he wanted to establish the whole world if it were to start with like a bunch of cute characters that he just dropped like a chapter later that would be really strange to me so basically i want it to i want whatever we're being introduced to to be part of what we're gonna follow so i opened up harry potter because i'm like somebody's gonna talk about that you know what the first fucking paragraph about harry potter is i you know what the don't first remember paragraph is about? it's about the dursleys the first paragraph is like something something the dursleys don't like magic and i'm like who fucking who cares <laughs> like i that's really reason, interesting my mind, the beginning was like the boy who lived and here's what that means you know and it, i had it, always i had always remembered the beginning I know that it starts with him at the Dursleys because yeah. it leads, it like establishes like his current struggle and why Hogwarts is going to be uh, salvation for him. But I thought it started with him in his fucking closet room. I think it goes right to stairs. that. In like the, on, I mean, I think the first two pages goes through all the beginnings we think it is. But if it was just the first literal just paragraph is two sentences about the Dursleys. Oh, wow. Which is an important thing to throw you into, but also, like, we have to very quickly accept a lot of things for Harry Potter to work, and one of them is not the Dursleys aren't magic. It's the one thing <laughs> that we all kind of get going into. Yeah, that, that one's a little easier to grasp, but then, Harry, you're a wizard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it? I Because I think I remember reading Harry Potter for the first time when the third book had come out, Mm-hmm. So I was very aware from the beginning that we were talking about a boy wizard. Yeah. And I think even with a title like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone, I think you're you're in for magic from the beginning. That's true. I guess I true. You do know that. And that doesn't think it's a magical book. That's that's a fair point, actually. I'd you know to be able what to you're going to do that, into. though, but I don't know how you would ever. I always, I always think about that, how these things would look work different if I didn't know any of the context going into it. But that's not the reality of what books are. Yeah. Right. Or movies or anything like that. So you can't can start from that. Did you hear that uh JK Rowling actually is going to release a new version where she changes some of the issues with it and the first paragraph is going to be about the history oh of sewers God, at Jesse. Hogwarts now? <laughs> it's going to say in the beginning <laughs> they vanished poop. Now they don't. Uh then it's going to have the three little asterisks and then it's going to have the Dursleys. <laughs> Ridiculous. That's not true for any listeners who are being fooled by Jesse's nonsense. I'm not the one. He's just obsessed with wizard toilets. I just don't get quite get why they, I mean, they just, we just released a movie where the criticism was we didn't ask those questions and we didn't need answers, JK. And then three months later, she's like, hey, you guys want to know about how they use the bathroom at Hogwarts? And we're all like, no, we're okay. We don't really care. Yeah, really. Let me me answer this. (laughs) It is, they banish it as they stand, which is, she did really say that. That's true. Um, I actually kind of feel like the fanta- the Fantastic Beasts franchise um, is her kind of giving too much information. It's like, we don't really need you to do this. Yeah. yeah. She's George like, Lucas a little bit right now. It's more fun, though, if we care about the characters than if you just tell us their backstory. Well, if you just 
I would say if you just stick one of the famous last names on a character, it kind of does feel like that's how she's treating it, which is a shame. Um, For my other book that I did really like, um, it was Between the World and Me by Tanahisi Coates. Have you guys read that? Oh, such a good book. Okay. And here's the opening Um, Sun. Last Sunday, the host of a popular news show asked me what it meant to lose my body. And that opening line just fucking just. Oh my god, I just remember I had no context for what this book was. I didn't know it was going to delve into racism. I just got mad at you for stopping. I was just like, you can't just leave me there. <laughs> well, then it goes on to explain more about um, the TV show and the context. And um, God, a couple paragraphs later, like I have so much highlighted in this book. Uh, it just says, um, basically, it explains that the host is asking him why he has the audacity to describe America's progress or white America's progress as um, being built on looting and violence. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just really strong. It's a really powerful story. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know that it was going to be a book to his son to explain how to navigate the world as a black man. Yeah. So that first sentence really like confused me. And I was just like, what do you mean lose your body? I knew this was nonfiction, so I didn't think it was magical or anything. So I was yeah. just like, what's happening here? And the fact that it starts just son, comma, like it's clearly written to his son just immediately. And I liked that setup i like i like what we're setting up immediately with what he's doing here um that reminds me of the other one that i had pulled out but i thought it was kind of a cheat and that is this one it's the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles and that's the first line of the communist manifesto and i was like that's kind of cheating to have a the beginning of a manifesto because they're they're meant to be succinct and have everything in them to energize the reader uh, so I didn't say that one, but it's sort of similar to that. That's a little bit different because it's a bit obviously more personal. It is, but I think there are, especially when you're telling a nonfiction story, if it's a more personal story and not just a, here's a recounting of another World War II battle or here's yeah. something obvious that we already know about, you do have to treat it like a manifesto. You do have to treat it like, let me get you into who I am and what I'm going through. Um, in order to keep the reader invested in something that's less selfish. Mm. I guess I guess what I like with it kind of is what you're describing, how it's not like he's writing a biography or something dry. What he's doing is he's talking to his son and he's trying mm. to like really not even comfort his son, just really actually help him navigate the horror that's going to surround him his whole life. Mm. And it's like some hard truths. It's just right off the fucking bat, you know. We, it's very personal and it makes you connect immediately really strong. I liked his um, his Black Panther as well. It was pretty solid. And he wrote an article for The Atlantic a couple months ago called um, Donald Trump, the first white president or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting that. Did you ever read that, Jen? I, I don't know what you're referring to. No, I... Uh, Donald Trump is the first white president is what it's called. And it starts off, that's the title, subtitle, something similar to it. And he's really good with just visceral imagery, like this idea of like losing your body. I mean, mm-hmm. what does that mean? And he goes on to explain exactly what that means for the whole book. It's pretty hardcore. Um, but it's not something you immediately know the answer to. You're like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. So saying something like Trump's the first white president, even I'm like going to look that up later because that's a really, like, what does that mean? That's, it's an interesting. It's an of course, but also not a given 
Like your mm-hmm. brain is like, I, that makes sense. But at the same time, you're like, wait a minute, nothing about that makes sense. Yeah. I went to go pull and I remember I, I gave it to a friend of mine. A lot of that, Im- a lot of that kind of um, visceral body imagery reminded me of the beginning of Postcards from the Edge, the Carrie Fisher novel. Mm-hmm. Just the way she talks about addiction and everything like that, even from the get go is just very, you feel it in yourself and you feel that, that body reaction almost at the same time that you're reading it. But I don't have anything about it to read from, so go look it up, everyone. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's I think that's the big point of the tiny Hasty Coats thing is there's that part of it, and then there's also just the tradition of actually not owning your body as a as a Black American, right? Be mm-hmm. it slavery or be it just you know how how white America is built, but also you don't have to like like Jen related with it, hearing it as not a a person of color. So that's that's it's sort of successful on a couple levels. Well, that's a, a very experienced writer. Yeah, similar to Carrie Fisher talking about addiction. You might not be an addict, but you you get what she's saying with that sort of language. Mm-hmm. So the other question I had, and I was thinking about this as we got into when Jesse said there's dialogue before there, but it's not really the beginning. Sometimes with books, you'll find a quotation or a poem or a Bible verse or something like that. That's either at the beginning of the chapter or the beginning of the book. And really, it's, it's something out of not in the author's own words, someone else's words. Do you guys find that effective, or does it just feel like another trick? Wait, can you describe what you mean a little more? Um, oh, let me think of where it's ha- where I've, I've um, seen it happen. Do you mean like a, a, a crap a prologue, or do you just mean like when there's a, a quote? Either way, I guess not a prologue, but yeah, either a quote or an inscription, or like an editor's note at the beginning, or like whatever. Not quite an editor's note. Give me two seconds. Let me see if I can find something. <laughs> I thought I saw one yesterday. Well, uh, there's the the famous one at the beginning of uh, The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Uh, I don't really remember what that one is. That, though, is written by a character it says on it, or the writer, is actually a character in a previous F. Scott Fitzgerald story that he put in there and said it was some some poet he was referring to that talked about wealth and love and all that bullshit. And then it was just himself. Um, but it does frame, I think, what you read afterwards a little bit as well. Without going, hey, guys, pay attention to this. It's a bit more of an assemblage. Well, I suppose similar to that, not quite the same, though. I don't really like when fantasy stories start out with a legend. Um, oh, like, yeah. And that's actually very common. And it, I love fantasy, but I don't like that. I don't like when the legend is told to me so that I'm supposed to frame everything going forward with that. Like, just introduce that to me in pieces as I need it later on. Don't yeah. start with some boring legend. I don't need it. It's not who I'm going to be following. There might be a way for, for that to orient you a little bit if maybe the world is doesn't make sense. I can't yeah, and it definitely it. sets the tone for fantasy, and it's effective at that. Yeah, but that's not the story you're, you're in there to read. Did you find uh, what you were thinking? I found something similar to what I'm thinking. Um, so in Salman Rushdie's Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, he, right before the story starts, he's got um, first this image of a man being attacked by owls. It's a Prado etching. And underneath it says, the sleep of reason brings forth monsters. And it says, uh, the full caption is, fantasy abandoned by reason produces impossible monsters. United with her, she is the mother of arts and the origin of their marvels. Then the next page says, one is not a believer in fairy tales. There is no theology, no body of dogma, no ritual, no institution. No expectation for a form of behavior. They are about the unexpectedness and mutability of the world. And that is uh, George Sertz. Then there's another quotation from Italo Calvino. 
and another line from A Thousand and One Nights, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, and then it goes into the story. So basically it has four different art pieces in order to sort of set the tone before you oh, actually get into anything. I know exactly what you're talking about because that's extremely common with fan fiction, for example. People will put yes. song lyrics. <laughs> but this was a not fan fiction. Well, I mean, Stephanie Meyer did that with the Twilight series, I'm pretty sure. I actually haven't read that in a really long time. But Is I, it like the original one? Like the, what's the original one? Oh, no, I'm thinking of... You said Twilight, not Fifty Shades. Yeah, Yeah, no, with actual Twilight, Stephanie Meyer had uh, poetry quotes at the beginning. Yes. Um, By her, were they like Evanescence or something? (laughs) They were actually well-established poets. I'm pretty sure. I actually don't remember the. I think the one of I I think the if I remember from the last book, the first chapter of the last book is just it's a nice day for a white wedding. Uh, That's gross. I can't remember if that was the quote or if it was just featured in the the chapter, but it was that obvious. Was it in the movie soundtrack? <laughs> no, it surprisingly was not. In between Vampire Weekend songs, or- it was Muse. Muse. So yeah, I was just wondering what you guys thought of stuff like that, where it's uh, an obvious art influence or poetry influence or biblical influence. So they're trying to establish something from a piece of work that you already recognize or that's already been established or something like that. Um, right. In general, I actually don't mind that as long as it's like pretty minimal and actually does match the tone of what they're going to write going forward. I don't. It doesn't bother me at all, um, especially because it's the sort of thing you can skip past and get straight to the story. It's not like it's. Yeah. It's not like it's disrupting anything. Uh, I think it can make it break. I don't know if it can make or break something like the beginning paragraph can, but it will make me, if it is not good, it will make me groan. And, and <laughs> I, and I'll, but like, I'll blame, I'll blame the author. So all of a sudden now I'm on my feet and I'm not trusting the author so much anymore. If it's something fucking corny, like it's a Billy Idol line like that, I'm going to go like, Ugh, and now I'm seeing all of their choices through that lens of that first misstep or that first sort of overextension or whatever that is. Well, that yeah. almost gives it more of a make or break quality than you, than you want to give the first paragraph. That's true. Well, and I guess, I guess if it were like really, I don't know. I mean, it can almost seem like they're kind of trying to write in on someone else's coattails if they do it too aggressively, I guess, which I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that, is true in even most cases, but I, I could see that being true. Well, and that's why I picked it when I went back to find stuff. I grabbed the Salman Rushdie one in the end because you can't argue that he's writing on someone else's coattails for the book he published in 2000 and something teen. Yeah, but it is. There's an argument for that being Scheherazade fan fiction. Well, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I mean, that's. That's Rushi's entire career is Scheherazade fan fiction, but there's neither here nor there. But there's a little bit of that because that's what he's talking about. Yeah, that is yeah, that is what the reference in the title is. I think my favorite one is from Talladega Nights. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And the and the before the movie starts, there's a quote and it says, America is all about speed. Hot, nasty, badass speed. And it's attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, so stuff like that does set the tone for humor. Like definitely like that um women are people you can put like coins into to get sex that's constantly misattributed to Sylvia Plath. You know that quote that I'm talking about? 
Yes. Like, that cycles before the, things? What? Oh, I, no, not, it hasn't been said before a book, but I could see someone using that for humorous purposes. Like yeah. in a, even in like a book about, let's say feminism, um, yeah. and you were, you were like a funny feminist author and you're like, let me just mm-hmm. put this totally fake Sylvia Plath quote that people actually believe is true just to yeah. like illustrate how like commodified feminism is or something, you know, uh-huh. I could just see how stuff like that can be really effective. I think I guess it all depends on then all the baggage of what you're referring to. Yeah. Are you ready to accept that? Are you ready yeah. to work with all that? And then also, are you doing the baggage right? So if you, if you actually, not just that, that one you had said, but if it's a real Sylvia Plath quote, and then you have a story that doesn't live up to maybe the 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 ethos that builds, then that hurts as much as just not saying anything. You know, you better not saying anything. So I think it's a hard needle to thread sometimes. Um, but I don't know if it's major, but I know it's it's another part of it. That's a good point, though. I think you're totally right. Got to make sure you're ready for what you're committing to here. <laughs> it's a big commitment. <laughs> you're marrying yourself to this other story or or uh, ethos. Don't ever let down Sylvia Plath. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of living up to things and not letting anybody down. <laughs> not ending up like Sylvia. Oh. Too soon. Too soon. Too, really soon. Too soon forever. All right. So speaking of not letting anyone down and setting yourself up for success with things, what are you guys looking forward to this year? Yeah, Jen, why don't you go first? Uh, this year, I'm looking forward to my, I got a promotion at work. Or not really promotion because I'm in the same position. I guess I should say I was granted more responsibility in my current position and, you know, given salary, which is pretty exciting. And I'm really looking forward to kind of living up to what has been asked of me it's pretty cool to be actually excited for my job like that's not something that everyone can say certainly i've never been able to say it before so i'm pretty happy yeah that's super exciting congratulations what about you jess um i don't really know i mean i'm not working right now so i'm looking forward to whatever that adventure turns into so any any job i find and what that means also i think more related to just like writing uh i had started this year saying i wanted to write an essay every month and i don't know what that means and i think that's what i wanted it to sound like where that could be about anything that could be some sort of quasi academic essay that could be some sort of review about something i'm really excited about that could be some sort of personal thing that could be a fiction piece and i think just as long as i get that out at the end of the month whatever it looks like i think i'll be i'll be living up to that resolution uh, so I'm looking forward to kind of seeing where that takes me. Um, I like that resolution. That's pretty cool, Jesse. That's a good one. And I'm hoping it it kind of works and kind of tricks me into thinking of writing more as a a job because it it is a it is a hobby. Um, and I think it's a hobby as as you get older, it's hard to justify it to yourself. Just as anything is kind of hard to justify to yourself. And if I just go, you know what? I can't justify it. It's just what I want to do. It's what I'm going to do. Here's my goddamn resolution to do it. And I do it, then it, it'll be a little bit better now that I've sort of stopped making the excuse that I have no excuses, if that makes sense. No, I think that's a really good way to approach it. So are you, other than the um, essay a month, are you going to try to do other things like nano again? Or I don't know about nano. I'll have to, I have to tell you guys that in October, uh, I think it'll be a little weird if I don't do it just for the sake of this podcast. But at the same time, uh, nobody's making me. So if I don't feel like doing it, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Privilege I'm not, I'm not, yeah and i'm not turned off to the idea i just know what kind of work it takes and i and i don't know if i were going to do it again which i probably will 
I don't know if I'll do like the official Nano Remo Association rules. Like, you'll go rebel. Not even that, but like not fifty thousand words. Maybe something like twenty thousand, and that's the whole thing I want to do. And if I do it, I do it. And if I don't, but not not feel beholden to those sort of unofficial um, standards uh, that they have. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's totally valid. I think mine for twenty nineteen is I literally did a little bit of everything last year. It felt like. You know, I was the super hard work achiever and I was trying to go harder with cosplay and I was trying to start a podcast and do all of these things. I tried streaming for a little bit. And after a short period of time, I kind of let all of them fall by the wayside. But I liked everything that I tried last year. So instead of making my resolution this year to do less or to dial back or to focus or any of those things like I've tried in the past, I'm going to go hard at everything. And if I want to do it, I'll do it. And if I don't want to do it, I won't do it. So just give yourself the freedom to just like do or don't do what you want at will. That's actually dope. That's a really good resolution. (laughs) Yeah. And just really like commit to the things that I enjoyed doing. I liked podcasting with you guys I want to do more of that I liked costuming you know or getting back into doing that and really building a you know quote-unquote brand for myself I enjoyed doing that I want to do more of that do more of the things that make me happy and spend less time worrying about a plan yeah that was sort of yeah my thought too I like that so you don't stress about the because the planning part really actually can be very stressful it can make you feel um unsuccessful if you don't have a clear outline or dedication in certain hours to something. And it sometimes takes you further away from actually doing something. Right, because it feels burdensome rather than enjoyable, which a hobby should be enjoyable. Right. And if you spend so much time planning one thing out that you're already exhausted, it's not worth it. That's that's not a good place to spend your energy. Well, and then creatively, I've found that that sort of like overthinking something and not getting done doesn't only affect me creatively. It also means like I'm not going to do my laundry that day because I'm just burnt out because I was frustrated or anxious about not having the energy or not being able to do the other thing I wanted to do. So then I get nothing done as opposed to one or the other. So that it is easy to, not easy, but it's, it's important, I think, to mitigate those two things. And I think that's a little bit of my plan too, with the essay and whatever that looks like is what it looks like and who cares. Um, just so that way I'm not paralyzed with those, both of those fears, the sort of personal and, and, and creative. I've actually dealt with that too, Jesse, where I kind of got so overwhelmed with expectations of myself that I ended up just doing nothing. And that's, that's a shitty place to be. I've read it called uh, errand paralysis. Oh, that's, yeah. that's definitely real for me at times. Definitely. And there's especially something unique about the way it affects like millennial aged professionals or paraprofessionals or creatives in any field too. Probably, I think millennial and under, I don't think it's just us. I think it's, it's, you know, uh, the youth. Gen, X, Gen Z's and whatever. Yeah. Just because of the weird, the, the weird forces that kind of are active on us all the time right now. Yeah. The way we have to interact with the world's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, my, my connection to the outside never turns off. It's not like I come home and I unplug. Yeah, that's a good point. We're constantly connected. We never really have a spare minute to ourselves. And even when we try to establish that alone time, we're sort of addicted to uh, that connection. <laughs> so oh, yeah, it can be stressful yeah. to like try to disconnect. You know, we were really literally raised like, it's like if you like raised a child drinking, like, that's an extreme example, but I just mean like it's really hard to like separate yourself from like the dopamine highs that you get from constant interaction through like cell phones and computers and things. 
Well, and I don't think it's as simple as either you are connected or disconnected. I think there's healthy usage, and I think we're all kind of starting to realize that now, but it's oh, hard definitely. to figure out what that looks like. Yeah, yeah, our generation is definitely trying to um, explore and uh, what that means, and you know, but we, we're the ones that we have to figure out what that means for us because we're the ones that it's affecting, and so that's a challenge, you know? Well, and that's how you see so many people going toward dreaming or watching people dream or watching, you know, YouTube vlogs because it is a completely solo activity that you can do by yourself in which you still feel like you're connecting with another person, that's regardless of which side of the camera you're on. It's similar Very to true. talking into a microphone and then sending it out to people and hoping they listen to it. Oh my goodness. Yes. <gasps> oh, so deep. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wait for this solo podcast that I do in a couple weeks. <laughs> to which I asked him, Are you sure you don't want to get a guess? And he said, No, I'm doing it alone. I will. I don't want to pull the curtain back too much, but we're still talking about it. I'll figure something out. I've got a few weeks. <laughs> I think past that, there's a few things I am looking forward to. And if we're talking about reading, writing, and everything sort of related with that, I am excited this year about the adaption of Alita Battle Angel. <sighs> I'm excited about Lego Movie 2. Um, and I think Lego Movie and hopefully Lego Movie 2 will be a ostensibly a children's movie that you can talk about the writing of. I think Lego Movie, the first one, works in a lot of smart ways, not just dialogue-wise, not just joke-wise, but a lot of story ticks that make it effective and make it sort of still around. Oh, yeah, it, it was a strong storytelling. Story yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's written in a very, like, sort of uh, deceptively simple way. It's a good story. Just it was. Yeah, nothing. And, and yeah, this thing about stories, too, and I think with film and and uh, uh, literature a lot is I think we all think, oh, it's new. And it's going to be the next big thing. So let's make it very complicated because that's what the future is. It's complicated. And I like those things that are able to pull back a little bit. Yeah, I think that's what DC does wrong with a lot of their stories. They really try to make it too complex when they should really try to be try to make it simple. And Aquaman, that's what Aquaman does. Aquaman strips a lot of those layers away. And it shows, and it's it's one of the it's probably the most effective DC movie so far, and it's it's a good movie. It's a straight up good movie. Does too. it strip those layers away though? I think it does, and it doesn't. I think it does, but it lets things land. Like there, it gives things room to breathe. It gives a, but it gives a lot of things room to breathe. Like the baby fish princess, or just the part in the middle where they go. It's just going to be Indiana Jones for twenty minutes now. And then, but then that's all it is. And then that works because it's like, oh, they got to go find that thing. But there's not also all these other things kind of in orbit other than Orm. But there are because there's the Atlantean royal court and some of the mermaids are human fish people. But then also there's an ocean master. Ocean master. But it doesn't affect the, the, the um, momentum of the story because it's only... The... It almost does. There's that whole scene in the middle where they're gathering at the council that's not in a bubble and it really just is how do we control this hierarchy that you've never heard of before that we're explaining to you now i have not seen it so i do have <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i liked it i don't know i mean just say you're right leah <laughs> i have read that it was the highest rated and most popular dc movie to date um, oh, and it was except a, woman, a lot of woman fun also, but um, nope it just it crossed that line today it's made more the dark knight now Really? It's the most popular DC movie of like any sort, not just this recent. Wait, it surpassed Dark Knight? That's what it says, but I don't think that's adjusting for uh, uh, inflation. Inflation. I don't know, though. That makes me really curious now because I don't know. I guess I haven't thought of it as being as culturally relevant as Dark Knight, but maybe it will become that. So maybe I should go see it. (laughs) 
<laughs> you should go see it because it, yeah. at the very least, it is a lot of fun and you belly laugh many times. Yeah, I don't I don't think I would say it would be as influential as The Dark Knight, but it's still good. Yeah. Well, and I know that they did like a cover of um, yeah. um, <laughs> Brains in Africa. Is that right? Yep. yep. They, there is a Pitbull song that samples Africa by Toto. Thank you, Africa by Toto. Okay, so I actually had my coworker send me that song um, (laughs) as a recommendation to go see that movie because of how ridiculous that song was. Oh, and it is full on a Baywatch scene where they emerge from the water. Jason Momoa has no shirt on and is like brushing his hair back and it's just playing, you know, gonna take a lot to take me away from you. I prefer it more than like user doing it though. Like, get out of here with that shit, nerds. I, I just thought it was really funny. Um, well, that's, that's the, the whole movie. movie is that's that. the movie, yeah. Is is it's it's so amped up and absurd in such a way that I think it breaks itself, and then all you can do is enjoy it because it it pushes it so far. You know, that's the director fun. he's the one that did the sort of like later uh, fan, Fast and Furiouses, which that's what I heard about. Brilliant them, is that they're so over the line that it kind of comes back around and they're good again. Yeah, he's <laughs> responsible from the car leaping from one high-rise to the next high-rise to the next yeah. high-rise. This is the man we've put in charge of Aquaman, and he's I would want no one else. And he's the guy that made Saw, which is a, is a very sort of simple, stupid premise that in his hands was okay. Not the later ones, or it was just they wanted to make every year because it was Halloween. But <laughs> um, by way of other movies coming out this year for writing there is one with a lot of punctuation in the title which i think is important for writing because that's fundamental uh hobbs no sorry fast and furious presents colon hobbs and shaw and it's two two ampersands and a colon (laughs) what why that's just because punctuation is important jennifer This is now going to become the punctuation podcast oh that'd be so good because i'm so bad at punctuation <laughs> Are you hoping that Hobbs and Shaw is teach you about it? Yeah, it's gonna be like watching a Schoolhouse Rock or um, Punctuation Station. <laughs> Schoolhouse The Rock Conjunction Junction. Yeah, What's Conjunction Junction. Function? I really enjoy punctuation. In I think it's fun to copy edit stuff. I'm so bad at it. I and I, I it's one of those things though too where I say I'm bad at it, but really in like the world I'm probably pretty good at it compared to everyone else. But it's just. I'm always around writers and people who call themselves grammar nerds or whatever, and I'm not as good as them, but I'm also okay at it. He's also the first one on Facebook to yell, spelling is uh, arbitrary. That is true, though. It is true. No, no, no. But A lot of times that argument boils down to like, oh, you misspelled something, and the subtext there is, hey, you dumb, dumb foreigner that doesn't know the language, you know? and Yeah, there is that subtext a lot no, of the there, time, which is terrible. There definitely is a lot of it. Yeah. But if you are one to preach the arbitrarity of spelling, yeah. you're probably not going to be a obsessive compulsive stickler for punctuation. Hey, man, yeah. you got to know the rules to break them, right? Even that I've always felt was, I kind of appreciate that sentiment as a general concept, but even that is like kind of trying to like wedge out people who... It, there's some gatekeeping going on. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's gatekeeping. It's like saying like, oh, is this your non-native language? Well fucking learn it if you want to do anything with this language if you want to communicate to us get on our level and it's like fucked up to me i'm like can you not just appreciate what someone has to say can you not like get past structure to understand content what is wrong with you structure is far less important than content 
in, ter- in terms of sentence structure, I'm, I mean, story structure, actually, even that can be messed around yeah. with. But um, just when people are sticklers about sentence structure and when they get really like, you know, prescriptivist about it, it's just. Yeah. Oh, but it man. all depends on the, on the, <laughs> the context as well, too. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also, if it's unreadable because there's these issues, then, that that, then that's anybody. a genuine problem. And, you know, yeah. if you want your content to be understood, you know, you want you want to work on that so that you can be understood. But somebody casually using the wrong form of your there on something, I don't. I don't particularly care. I, the one that bothers me all the time was when I see things on Facebook or on Yelp a lot where they post up like, um, this word's misspelled Chinese menu. And I'm like, probably. Like, you know what it is. You know it's the orange chicken and not the orange orange chicken. You know, like, you <laughs> chicken, get it. Yeah. So the whole point there is just, hey, dum-dums, learn the language, which doesn't make, it doesn't matter, you know, or here's quotes around chicken inside the menu. Oh, who, okay. That's yeah, that's wrong, but who cares? Yeah, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It never will. I would say, and it's a lot less embarrassing when you see it on a Chinese food menu or on any kind of like small business thing of that sort, because you usually only have one chance to send it in and get it printed. Yeah, it's always more embarrassing when something is purpose, not purposefully, but misspelled and left in something published, like in a book or anything like that, where there were a thousand eyes on. Yeah, and there's like professional editor who was paid quite a lot of money to sort through it. Right, not just the uh, 13 year old you paid ten dollars to type up your menu who just really wanted to get, you know, his candy money and run. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that kid. I'm just saying, well, he's got other priorities. Yeah, he's got he's got to think about that candy. Typically, I find people who know do do know the rules, and this is a maybe unfortunate thing. People who do know the the grammar rules more have learned them in a scholastic way. I find a lot of times are more forgiving, which is, but which then makes it kind of sound like, you know, you got to know the rules to break them or you got to know the rules to complain about them, which I don't think is true. But when I see somebody complaining that there's the wrong there, I typically don't get the vibe off that person that they understand anything past that one rule. Well, yeah, it often actually, when you run into someone who's like a grammar cop, which is my preferred term for grammar Nazi, I don't like I'm that. I'm not going to go Nazi. Oh, I hate it's, that. It, so grammar cop, when you run into a grammar cop, in my experience, nine times out of 10, it is someone who is not academically trained yeah. on the language structure and actually frequently makes grammatical errors and punctuation errors. And so they're really just coming from a place of elitism. They're not coming from a place of like genuinely trying to help you. They're just trying to feel smart. And it makes me really angry because like who are they like how dare they i don't know what i always imagine of those people is that they were a precocious precocious intelligent like elementary school kid and in like the fifth grade their teacher was like you're a very good writer and then they're like i figured it out i can stop here (laughs) and then they've always had that inside of them because they've never had to second guess it because somebody they respected told them they were good at something and nobody was like oh no you're not good at that as well as you and they never had suzanne scott as a professor who set them straight like you are fucking wrong about your sentence structure from beginning to end you get a zero like she was very well educated on the strict rules of language and it really actually taught me that i didn't know nearly as much as i thought i did um until after i took her structure american and english structure class yeah and there's a little bit different too i hope that she acts like that maybe in a linguistics class and not in like english 100a right yeah i mean it makes sense in a class about linguistics and a class about 
English language structure, right? Um, like if that's what you're literally supposed to be learning, you need to learn that, right? That makes sense. Um, outside of that context, I, it would be a little weird. Uh, in my uh, grad school, I had a linguistic class and the teacher was the exact opposite of that teacher we had at HSU together, where she was very casual about things. There was hardly any homework, but she knew so much and she had been in the linguistics game for, she was probably about 70. Um, so she had been working with people for 50 years in the industry. She knew Chomsky. She personally knows people. Oh, she would give us articles where they would quote her inside of them. Oh, my God. And she was the nicest, like most pretentiousless person. And she would just kind of like like run court and she would just kind of like talk and tell us things and be like, watch this video, read this thing. And then I think the only thing we ever had to work on was uh, a take home exam on like those sorts of theories of of linguistics and not actually the nuts and bolts of it and more like what is universal grammar what does that mean you know what does that have to do with anything uh what's the difference between a dialect and a patois which is mean that just comes down to just government and so that was really good for me because i'm not good at that like nuts and bolts stuff but i'm happy i had a teacher earlier who was very intense about that because otherwise I would never have learned those really specific things. I, yeah, I think it's good to have a variety of teachers so that you do get both um, perspectives because having a type A teacher taught me more than I ever thought I could learn in a class. It was crazy. Well, it's one of those things that's so fucking tough when you're there. And then afterwards you're like, oh, okay, I'm kind of happy I got shotgunned with all that stuff at the time even though it was tough and hard and didn't make sense. There are a lot of books where you kind of get forced to read like that, where you don't appreciate them in the moment and you look back and you're incredibly glad that you experienced that. Well, that's what I'm kind of saying when I, when I say, like, I don't remember opening paragraphs. Obviously I do. Right. It just, sometimes they're so thick and they, you, you have to just, you're kind of just doing whatever you can do to keep your head up. And then later you're like, oh, I'm stronger because I had to swim hard to keep my head up at the beginning of this. So there's... Oh, definitely. No, you're definitely onto something. All right. So moving on, uh, what uh, what are you guys expecting for the podcast next? Expecting next or hoping for next? <laughs> I'm I'm really expecting us to take down the dictionary next week. Take so, down the dictionary? We're going to read it out loud the whole time? No, I figure if you guys are going to attack grammar that viciously, oh. we, you know, <laughs> Scrabble. <laughs> yeah, let's take down the dictionary. It's a scam. <laughs> patriarchy is responsible for the dictionary it all hey, dictionary describes our language but we own our language so what Whoa. we say is the law just saying you heard it here first okay no really though moving on what are you hoping for i think what we're really hoping for is really more of what it was we did last year so more writing more challenges to each other more kind of pushing each other to be creative and i think in 2019 instead of just us talking we're gonna kind of spice it up a little bit. I know we're looking at getting some guests on here within the next few weeks, possibly maybe narrowing our focus and trying not to take on large writing challenges right after other large writing challenges. Mm. <laughs> yeah, maybe not do that. Yeah, Jesse, what are you looking forward to? I got too enthusiastic about this idea. It's coming off of Nano, which is a lot of work, uh, which I think is a lot of fun. I think we really help each other through that. And I'm looking forward to more things like that where we can help each other through something. I'm also looking forward to lots of things that are not that, meaning maybe nothing, um, no concept, no homework, just us enjoying ourselves, hoping that you know our sort of enjoyment of just talking with each other and about whatever we feel like will sort of spread off to our listeners or just to ourselves. Even if we're just talking to ourselves, I feel good about that as well. Um, so just more room to sort of play around 
Well, and you can, uh, hopefully this will translate when we do get them on. I think a lot of the people we're looking at bringing onto the podcast, outside of even their interest in writing, we're looking at people that we love talking to and we just want to share their energy and our excitement for them and their excitement for the things they do with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's hard, not hard, sorry. Uh, I think I think sometimes what we're actually talking about here is just general creativity. And I think a lot of guests that we're looking at or a lot of our friends or a lot of just people we know are very have very similar ideas just about creativity in general. And I think I'd like to you know, explore that a little bit and where that coincides with writing and where things are different because not every creative endeavor is the same. But there's a lot of similarities and I, I, I'm excited to to play around with those a little bit. Yeah, I do. I do really like that idea of uh, kind of expanding our look at writing to a broader, the broader world of creativity, because there's a lot of storytelling that goes on through other types of mediums. And I, I like that stuff. I, I want to include that in Write Sweats. To me, that matters. And I'm also really glad we don't have homework. Yeah. We will, also got to say, I'm super excited about Leah's spreadsheet she created for our podcast. Sounds boring, but it's actually a beautiful spreadsheet. Ooh. Organizing. Flex, flex. For real, though, being this organized feels great. And I love our brainstorming uh, page of our spreadsheet because it is full of all of our creative ideas. And I am looking forward to some of the goofier ones that are in here. Now, Leah, does this mechanism inside of you that helps you organize things visually very well does this have a a inherently creative aspect to it to you like do you get the same feeling from seeing a successful spreadsheet go together like this that helps everybody as you would from like writing a paragraph or or a chapter of a of a piece you're really proud of so it feels good but it doesn't necessarily feel good in the same way there are things like with writing and with sewing where I generally only write for myself and I only sew for myself. It's very rare that I make a, a piece or a costume for another person, mm-hmm. um, except maybe within like the small little group that I have that I do it with. So those I feel happy and fulfilled when I complete them, but it is all for myself. Um, when I do good things for my team at work, when I make these spreadsheets, when I even put together like vacations with my friends, I get more enjoyment out of the reaction of others where I do have a couple of hobbies like writing, like sewing, where those are just for me and I get excited for myself and only myself and I don't care what other people think about it. Yeah, I will say that your level of an ability to organize things is almost like an art form. And the way it sounds like you're describing it, where it's for us and the other ones for you is a little bit like you're the director that makes the personal film and then the blockbuster to make the personal film. You know, like (laughs) the organization is to get to the things to do that you want to do. Right. So I I create this thing that lets you get, lets us all as a community be more organized and it makes me like having the spreadsheet doesn't matter to me but you guys enjoying the spreadsheet matters to me. Then when we actually record the podcast, I could care less about what everyone else thinks about the podcast. I love what we're doing and that makes me happy. So it's selfishly (laughs) off. It's true though. (laughs) I can't help it. I actually, yeah, I kind of like Jesse's view of it as almost an art form because honestly, if listeners could see your spreadsheet, it is an art form. This level of like structuring and organizing things in such a digestible way is art to me. It's amazing, (laughs) guys. It makes me feel so special. Well, it's something also that I can't do. So there's a level of, of appreciation that way. It's like when I see somebody like play chess really well. I don't get chess at all, you know, but I I, I admire that somebody else can do it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or any sport, I guess, not just chess. 
Well, you guys have such knowledge and and such creativity. I I feel so proud of the things that I, that you guys accomplish, whether or not I have anything to do with them. So anything I can do to give you guys more space or more to talk about things you're passionate about and to share those things I will do without thinking. Mm -hmm. That's what I like doing. That's so beautiful. Shut (laughs) up! (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to cut everyone up and that's end it for this edition of The Right Sweats. Uh, you know where to check us out. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. Definitely check out our blog. We'll make sure that the link to that is in the show notes. And lastly, if you have any ideas of stuff we should do as the right sweats for this coming year, if we kind of do this whole new year, new us thing, please send us an email. We're actually at rightsweatspod at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you. Until next week, peace out, people. Bye. See you later. Thanks for tuning in. just want to make everyone kind of on edge right away.